0: We are so thankful that you are here. And hopefully the Lord is already seeping in with his love and um, his goodness. The Lord orchestrates times and spaces in our lives in which we can receive in a unique way. And I pray that this is such a time for you this weekend. Whatever you carry into the weekend, a healing need, a burden... A question for God is no secret from the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? And maybe as you dialogue with him, you might hear him ask you a question. I was thinking back uh, several years ago when I was uh, a prayer minister at a healing conference here in Wheaton. And there were about 900 people there. And the Lord asked me a question in my devotional time. I will preface this by saying that I am a fairly private person. And the Lord said to me, I have a healing for you, but it will embarrass you. Do you want it? am like, whoa, what a question. Uh, and it took everything in me to say, yes, Lord, of course, I want anything you have to give me. And then I forgot about it. Well, we were in a session and uh, Leanne Payne had was giving this wonderful talk and she told us all to close our eyes and to get ready to pray Well, I was sitting on the front row and I thought you know I probably shouldn't pray for people during this prayer because I think I probably need this prayer And all of a sudden I heard the click of her heels coming across the stage and I heard her lean over and say Katherine, Catherine. And I thought oh I should tell her that I shouldn't pray for people She's going to call me up there to pray for people No, she was calling up to pray for me in front of 900 people. And so she took my hand and she brought me up, but I didn't realize that yet. And she had me stand at the podium and I felt this hand come on my neck like this. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is what the Lord was talking about. He is going to embarrass me in front of all these people. And I remember that the Lord gave me this moment. I put my hands down and I felt like the Lord said, do you want it? Or do you not? And I said, it took me a moment, but I said, yes, I do want this. Well, the Lord really ministered to me in that moment. And I was able to put aside what others might think. And I left, and I passed some friends, and um, I thought, man, I should probably say something. I'm kind of embarrassed. I was sort of made a spectacle in front of everybody. You know, Leanne would pray for everybody while praying for somebody here. So... You know, she knew you were receiving it while she's praying for everybody else. And so I mentioned something to some friends, and they're like, what are you talking about? We didn't see you up there. And I thought, wow, the Lord was so gracious. He made me press through the fear of exposure while he protected me. And so it could be that you're falling in the category of the person who's arriving and saying, Lord, there are certain kinds of healings that I want and certain kinds of healings that I don't, and I don't want it to happen this way and that way and the other. Or you might be one of those people who's saying, I would love that kind of healing. You know, make it big and loud and make me know that it's really happening. Whereas the Lord might want to give you just this small ball of light that you don't even know is there but it's ministered to you and it goes away and it slowly starts to seep through your whole being over the course of years. So my encouragement to you is come saying, Lord, what do you want to give me? I want to receive it. And try not to dictate to the Lord how that's going to come to you. And just let him work. We are engaging with the Almighty and sometimes he asks us questions. I was thinking about some of the questions that he asked to people in the scriptures. He said to Adam where are you? He said to Moses what is that that you have in your hand? He asked Elijah what are you doing here? He asked Jeremiah is there no balm in Gilead? He asked Ezekiel, Can these bones live? He asked the blind man, Do you believe that I am able to do this? He asked Saul, Why do you persecute me? He asked Malachi, Can a man rob God? He asked his disciples, Who do you say that I am? He asked Job, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Or even better, can a fault finder contend with the Almighty? And he asked Abraham, is anything too hard for the Lord? And I would ask you tonight, is anything too hard for the Lord? Uh, Keith asks for titles for our talks at an insanely early time. Um, So they can be printed up, you know, those kinds of things. And so actually, the real title for this is Remembering Our Story is God's Story. God owns your story. You don't own your story. God owns it. Tonight I want to remind us, I want us to enter into that remembrance that our story belongs to the Lord. And if you belong to the Lord and you're hidden in Him, If you will but surrender to him, he will make sure that your life is meaningful and rich and that you will be all that you were created to be. You can trust him in that. There's a book called A Hundred Years of Solitude. It's by a Colombian author, Garcia Marquez. In this uh, novel, a village succumbs to an insomnia plague which in its wake brings forgetfulness of the deepest kind. These these people don't sleep for years. People begin to forget what the names of items are, so they start to label them. This is a chair, a door. This progresses to a loss of memory as to the function of objects. Oh, but what is a door? Then to a forgetfulness of one's own history A loss of the meaning of language, so that mother has no meaning anymore, or the word father has no meaning anymore. Here's a passage from the book. Little by little, studying the infinite possibilities of a loss of memory, Wendia realized that the day might come when things, things would be recognized by their inscriptions, but no one would remember their use. Then he was more explicit. The sign that he hung on the neck of the cow was an exemplary proof of the way in which they were prepared to fight against loss of memory. This is the cow. She must be milked every morning so that she will produce milk. And the milk must be boiled in order to be mixed with coffee, to make coffee and milk. Thus they went on living in a reality that was slipping away, momentarily captured by words, but which would escape, irremediably, when they forgot the value of the written letters. At the beginning of the road into the swamp, they put up a sign that said, God exists, because people were forgetting. This novel goes on to explain how these people succumbed to an imaginary reality that was more comforting than all the work they had to do to remember, to the point that it was even too hard to remember what a father was or what a mother was. I'm often reminded of this story when I read the newspaper, or listen to the national conversations in the media, or talk to individuals. It's as if we're living in an insomnia plague with a slipping memory. We're losing the very meaning of language, of identity, of gender, of mother and father, of family, of God, and certainly of our purpose here on this earth. In the story, interestingly enough, what finally frees the village from the plague of forgetfulness is not dialogue. It's not a new thought. It's an old man who comes from the world of true rest and memory, bringing the anecdote in a flask. Everyone has to drink it. And in this figure, you have an undeniable Christ figure that uh, Garcia Marquez brings in with the cup of his life, saying, do this in remembrance of me. It is as we come into the presence of God that all of meaning aligns itself. As we receive from the Eucharistic table where that that kingdom reality intersects with our temporal reality, and that visible reality, we remember. We remember our purpose. We remember what God has done. We're brought into connection with the unseen real. It said when the villagers drank this anecdote, their eyes were filled with tears to see the absurdity within which they had been living, as they saw all the notes all over the wall describing what was real. And they recognized the man with a dazzling glow of joy. All of you who are here tonight have some level of desire for transformation. The starting place is awakening out of sleeplessness to who we are what we have received and what we are promised as i reflected on this passage in first peter that was read tonight i realized how many christians do not live into their true identity thank you <clears throat> they live defeated and small lives It's when we walk in this dreamlike, otherworldly perception of ourselves that doubt and despair flood in. God has made us to be expansive, to live beyond this life. Our lives actually extend beyond this. He's made us to enter into the abundant life flowing from him and walk connected always to ultimate reality. So, if you can pull out your uh, First Peter readings, I want to reflect on some things in this reading. Who has God declared us to be? The first thing that we see in verse 3 is that he has caused us to be born again. This phrase was made so popular in the 70s that I think that we've forgotten what it means. I am born into god it's hard to wrap our minds around it even he says that the only way for me to have the inheritance that he wants to give me is for me to be born into his family baptism is that water birth that the scriptures talk about which brings me into the embrace of god the father and the church as my mother i am born again I have Jesus' genes. Do you believe that? Have you forgotten that you have the genes to love? You have the genes to forgive, the genes to be patient, the genes to be joyful. We're going to talk about how we activate those genes and live into them, but we have to start by realizing that we have them. Oswald Chambers says, eternal life is not a gift from God. It's the gift of God. I am given God. Eternal life is the life that Jesus lived on this earth, and now he's living it in me. Paul says the mystery of the Christian faith is this, Christ in me. Are you trying to live the Christian life by gutting it out? It's really hard. The secret of the Christian life is Christ's indwelling presence. I just have to make space for him. That sounds easy, but look what Abraham had to do. But that is what God's asking us. Surrender, and I will make space for you. I will make space to come in. I have to be trained to cooperate with him. But the supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit, who moves into my body, has been imparted. Jesus tells us in John that he is coming to make his home in us. I don't know how we can ever escape this in the Christian life. It's all over the scriptures. Christ coming to live inside us. My husband, Stuart, is a runner. By the way, he would love to be here tonight, but he's at the Anglican Provincial Council. Um, he's a runner, and he takes our kids hiking almost every week. From early on, I've heard him telling the kids, rucks, don't complain on long walks. They have stamina. He used to call Christian the mountain goat, even when he was struggling Up, Come on, Christian, you're a mountain goat. Come on. Uh, He has so affirmed our six-year-old Nathaniel that this vacation, Nathaniel ran 21 minutes on mountain trails with all the teenagers in the family because rucks are runners. Now, Stuart has imparted to the kids running genes. They really do have running genes and they didn't come from me. But they may never have known about them if they hadn't started running. If they hadn't gotten out there and believed Stuart when he said, you've got them, they're right there, just activate them. And they're beginning to live in their running genes. Now, of course, they're really gonna have to train if they wanna run a marathon Um, but they have what it takes to do it. Recently, I was angry at the way I was treated by a fellow Christian, and I stewed about it for a few days. And then I felt the Lord say, you, Catherine, are a Christian. You have all it takes to forgive. You have me. Are you willing? I had to choose to let the life of Christ flow in and through me in forgiveness, make the space for God's forgiveness, and to let resentment go. In verse 22 and 23 of our reading at the very bottom, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. God's not saying love people and not giving you what it takes to love them. He's given you his love and his person to love through you. If you are here and you have been born into Christ, step into that belief that you are inhabited by Christ. You have him living in you. You are in his family. So the beginning of my story is clear. I am born again. The end of my story is secure. It says here in 1 Peter, What have I been born again into? A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Guess what? I am fully provided for. I have, in this new family, the living hope of an inheritance. Wow, my life doesn't end when my eyes close in death to this world. I receive an inheritance, which it goes on to say in there, is the full salvation of my soul. All that I have hoped for will be fulfilled. Ephesians and Colossians speak of this inheritance. Paul prays that we will have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope and riches of this glorious inheritance. He's saying it takes a revelation from God for you to know what this inheritance is. He also speaks of the Holy Spirit being the guarantee of that inheritance. Again, the Holy Spirit, Christ in me, becomes that down payment, almost that guarantee that the inheritance is fully coming scriptures teach us that we were saved we are saved we are being saved and we will be saved so this salvation stretches over the course of our lives and it's dynamic and it's in, at work in me already but i will only receive the completeness of it when i see jesus face to face but do we live as if we have an inheritance uh, when Stuart's grandmother died, we were asked as grandkids um, what we would like from her house. And we could all kind of ask, and I asked for a teapot. They had 13, I know that now. They had 13 teapots, and they loved tea, and we loved tea. So I thought that would be a great thing to have, a teapot. Well, it turned out that one of the, the daughters decided she would start a teapot collection, and she would take all of them. And I thought, wow, okay. Um, so then, one day, they said, hey, the basement's open. You guys can go down and choose. Uh, you, you can give us a list of things you want from the basement, kind of the leftovers. And so Stuart and I were down there, and we found a teapot. We're like, there's a teapot down here. You know, we'll take, this is obviously Nana's favorite teapot, hidden here in the basement. Nobody could use it. Uh, and we still call it to this day Nana's favorite teapot because... Nobody knew where it was. Sometimes we think that God's inheritance is like that basement teapot, the leftovers. Everyone else got the good picks. Do you live your life in the attitude that God is withholding something from you? You know, the first temptation in the Garden of Eden was to think that God was withholding something good. Satan said, "Did he really say that? You can't eat this." You know why? Because there's a knowledge that you'll get and he's withholding from you. This posture toward God is so far from truth that it actually prevents us from receiving all the good that He has for us. We have to move into this alignment with what is real about our inheritance. God has birthed us into his family, and we have all of God for our inheritance. Do not fear, little one, for the Lord has been pleased to give you his kingdom. I'm thankful to have grown up under the life example of my parents who truly lived in the understanding that God was a rich father, capable of providing all things. This gave them freedom to live in generosity, in a kind of abandon to what the Lord might ask. You have everything you need and will need. You can live with abandon. Your life can go down into the ground like a seed and die because you believe that all of God's life is yours. You haven't lost anything. A friend of ours who grew up as a missionary kid told a great story of their family leaving the mission field to come on furlough in the States. Their father basically called them all together, and this is what he said. Nothing we have here to sell will come near to providing what we're going to need in the States. God's going to have to provide for us. So instead of worrying about things, we're going to give everything away. Just in that confidence that god's going to provide for us so he told his kids look take this motorcycle our motorcycle and go down to bob's house and give him the keys and tell him it's his now for in columbia where they were this having a motorcycle was transportation it was ministry it was everything so these kids toddle down to bob's house and they say hey bob here we have a motorcycle for you and when my friend was telling me about this, he said, I will never forget the look on that man's face as I participated in this generosity. Um, and it marked him for life that he could live with abandon because God would provide all. And God did, uh, the story of how God provided them for them after they got here was confirmation for them um, that God was always enough in providing. But, of course, this is no excuse for the lack of stewardship with our money. If we, don't, we don't use our money frivolously and then presume on God to make up for our foolishness. That's not what I'm talking about. But we do live outside of common sense uh, because we know that we have everything in the family of God. We have all we need. We have a rich and glorious inheritance. So A third thing, okay, we know that we've been born into God, or we forget that we've been born into God. We forget our future is secure. You know what we love to forget as suburban Christians? That we're going to have many trials. And that's what 1 Peter talks about. We forget that the journey to prepare, to make ourselves capable of receiving an inheritance is painful. Because it involves death, death to self, being freed to receive God. I had really hoped that I could miraculously be wise, or loving, or patient. Unfortunately, the Holy Spirit has to soften me, has to take stone and make it into flesh, because life can't flow into stone has to be made into flesh so that his life can flow in. We have atrophied places in us that need the pulse of new life. Uh, I'm not a very good gardener, but we have a hose that gets lots of kinks in it all the time. And you can imagine, you know, when you see that water's not coming out of the end of the hose, you think, wow, there must be a kink somewhere. So you go back and you look for the kink. You get that kink out, and it makes a kink over here, and this twists, and you're, you know, trying to sort out this hose. But the water's in there, and I I think in a lot of ways our journey with the Lord is he's working on getting that water out, but he's got to go through a lot of untangling, a lot of freeing up space so that he can come through. First Peter references this crucible here. He says, we are tested like gold that must be refined in a fire. That doesn't sound really good. Um, our faith must be tested to be genuine. A crucible is by definition a vessel that where heat is applied, right? And what is inside can be transformed. But the heat is a big part of it. Anything can be a crucible. Your life situation, your circumstances, difficult relationships, financial stress, emotional deprivations. But it doesn't mean you'll find God there unless you're looking for him there. Because he said he's there. When we feel squeezed and fired, will our belief in God prove to be genuine? Well, I believe that I can encounter God here in this fire. He knows how to walk through fire. Why? Because he traveled this journey before us. He endured torture, trial, betrayal. Hebrews said he did it for what? For the joy that was set before him. For the inheritance that was set before him. He passed through hell and rose in glorious life. And that's the one that lives inside you. He... Can walk you through those trials because he's been there. Only in the crucible do we see what's truly in our hearts and find ourselves ready for the transforming work that Christ can bring as we surrender. I think a lot of our vessels are restricted and pinched, don't have a lot of room. Only God can stretch them and carve out space for himself, and that rarely feels comfortable. Father Arseny was an Orthodox priest who lived through the Gulag in Russia. He's taught me by his example when I've read about him that no circumstance can obscure the presence of God unless we obscure it. He was imprisoned for years in the Soviet labor camps, which he saw as the parish that God had assigned to him. Oh, wow, this is where I'm going to be priest. Once he was falsely accused and he was sent to solitary confinement in a metal room for 48 hours in 20 degrees below zero weather. Everybody was shocked when he was given this, uh, you know, this punishment because they knew that it was certain death. No one could survive that amount of time. But Father Arsini actually entered into the room full of joy. He said, for the first time in years, I'm going to be able to pray out loud. uh, An unbeliever was stuck in with him because he too had been accused in this situation. And he gives us the account of Father Arsini. He said, when he stood up and he began to pray, he said, I saw these shining vestments come down and cover him. And he ministered the Eucharist, and the elements were there. And he began to, um, he said he prayed for the whole 48 hours. Uh, when the guards came to get them two days later, frost was on their clothes, but their bodies were warm. They had survived. Now would the same glorious deliverance had happened, happened if Father Arseni had gone in complaining, feeling slighted by God... Despairing, I wonder, it's not that God would not have wanted to save him, but he would not have Father Arsini would not have made his body, mind and soul available to the life of the Lord, so that he could save him. Incidentally, the man with Arsini eventually was fully converted and became a priest himself. Who would not, after seeing that display of faith in the Lord's presence, do you believe that the Lord can meet you anywhere? I hope you're never in solitary confinement in 20 degrees below zero. I hope I'm never because my faith would truly be tested. But I've had to learn that God can meet me in a kitchen with dishes piled high, boys playing soccer around me, and a baby climbing on the table. I have found motherhood to be a crucible. I love being a mother, but I never expected that in the squeeze of having six children, I would see all this junk come up and out of my soul. All of my control issues, my self-pity, my need to be recognized, my anxieties, my fears, my impatience, my anger, it all surfaces. I liked myself so much better before I got into this heat and found all that dross floating around. But if I try to escape this crucible, I really miss the opportunity for transformation. Heat. Than healing. It is also in this crucible that I have learned to love and sacrifice, to live most fully as a Christian, doing the hidden and unrecognizable acts of service in the companionship of the Lord. Even in my 20s, when I was receiving prayer for deep issues in my life, I believed the Lord would work these into my personhood. I really did. Sometimes I would have a release that was miraculous. Sometimes Nothing would happen that I could notice. But as I look back now at this stage in my life, I realize it happened. The Lord did it over time. And you know where he did it? In my kitchen. And that's not what I necessarily would have chosen for my life. But that's the way the Lord often works. He takes us into a tight place. And we discover the wonders of his love can meet us even there. Those prayers, those prophetic words that come to us, sometimes they just, I think, hover like birds over us, waiting to alight. As soon as there's space, I'm going to descend. And all of a sudden, there's a space. It's there. And so I say, receive all the prayers you can and just keep walking and saying yes to the Lord. And those things will descend into you as soon as there's space. But, in the converse, if you think you own that healing that God gives you, and you walk away from the Lord, let me tell you now, that healing's not yours. It's the Lord's. And it's in him that you keep that healing. And I've seen a lot of people walk away from their healings when they walk away from the Lord and say, it wasn't real. Well, it was real when you were in the Lord. It's not yours. You have to stay in him to have that operative in your life praise god that you don't have to scramble around for your healing or scare up meaning for your life god has already told you in first peter that your life is being guarded through faith and that after your faith is tested your life will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of jesus christ we lose hope because we get caught in the particulars of our losses and our disappointments. And we don't see an arc of story that carries meaning beyond ourselves. We forget that our lives extend into an eternal story, like Abraham's tonight. If Abraham hadn't been faithful to the Lord, where would we be today? And First Peter says that these prophets knew that they were serving you they weren't serving themselves they were serving you you're serving somebody with your life and you may not see who it is and it may be in another generation but your faithfulness to the Lord will serve in the eternal story I saw on a YouTube recently a man who was painting a huge picture now it's not my art style but uh, he had this huge canvas and he's painting these strokes that have no sense uh, no image is really clearly forming. He's doing it to music and a lot of people are watching and he's just going to town And I'm looking at this going this has no meaning. There's not painting anything After a while he grabs a canvas and flips it upside down and you see it's the face of Jesus and this cry goes up from the the crowd this roar of Recognition that's what he was doing and I think that's gonna be our lives in some ways when we see the Lord Uh, We don't understand the different strokes, the the, uh, question marks, the unexplainable. But Jesus, when he takes the veil from our eyes, we will see him in our lives. We will see him. God's dream for Abraham was not that he would have a prosperous nomadic life in harmony with his beautiful wife, Sarah. He wanted to make him a father of many. He wanted Sarah to be a mother of many. For this to happen for Abraham, God had to take him on a journey of getting to know him and of getting him to trust him at the deepest level. So God asked Abraham to sacrifice everything, his home, his comfort, his community, and eventually his son. And Abraham's like, this is the promise you gave me. I'm asking you to lay that down, the vision that I've given you. But this is the belief that Abraham had is so profound. Hebrews says that Abraham believed that if God was asking him to kill Isaac, that the promise was still true, that it would come through Isaac. What did it say that he believed? God would raise him from the dead. That was his confidence in the promise that God had given him. If he's asking me to lay down Isaac and kill him, then he must be planning to raise him from the dead. Because he said, this is how the promise will come. He believed God. I want to tell the story tonight of someone whose life from a worldly perspective was a composite of tragedies, losses, and a trajectory of great to small. Yet because somehow she understood her life to be more than God, she was able to learn all the Christian lessons of love and joy. This woman named Dora Castro was Spanish. I knew her because when I was five and our family moved to Brazil as missionaries, she was our housekeeper. Only later, when I was older, did I learn her full story. She lived during the Franco rebellion and she and her husband found themselves on the wrong side of the conflict, resulting in prison for both of them. She got out by deceiving the guards that she was into thinking that she was pregnant, which was confirmed by a fellow prisoner who was a doctor. Her last encounter with her husband was when he called out her name, she turned, and he shot and killed himself in her presence. She had already lost a son due to being thrown down a stairway when she was pregnant with him. Leaving an older daughter, she escaped Spain as a stowaway on a ship to Brazil. And there she was in a foreign land without family or friend and somehow found her way into a living, being a maid. One day she showed us a photograph which took our breath away. There sat our familiar housekeeper, though strangely unfamiliar, as she was bejeweled, surrounded by servants, and flanked by two large and stately dogs. Then I understood a little bit more about the descent of her life. I understood how she had lost riches, recognition, influence, and regard. I also understood why she ran our house as if it belonged to her and we were all of her servants. (laughs) Which greatly irritated my mom. On a worldly scale, Dora's life was obscure. It was awash with pain and loss. But what Dora brought to my life as a child is immeasurable. My mother was clinically depressed for several years and often in bed. Dora was in some ways an answer to my mother's prayer for the Lord to care for us while she was unable. Dora came into our life. She she was she had quite the just amazing bosom. And she was such an embracing mother. And she came into our home full of life and companionship. You never would have guessed what her story was. Creativity. Uh, nurture, love. She would just get us in, bring us in. I remember her hugging me and laughing. I still remember standing beside her as she ironed and taught me Portuguese, such as hers was what we called Portoño, which was a big mixture of Spanish and Portuguese. She taught me ditties and songs. I watched her make magic in the kitchen. She had a dish she made from shredded chicken that she called old clothes, and it was what she would do so well, take leftovers and turn them into something wonderful. Dora longed for her daughter and finally returned to Spain to die. The last time I saw her, I was a teenager. I didn't understand enough about my life at the time to know the gift that she had given to me. She must have wondered at the trajectory of her life at the loss of all that was dear and all that defined her, husband, children, home, country. She could have wallowed in despair, in the futility of life, but instead she learned the Christian lessons of love and surrender, so that her very presence ministered to a little girl in need of nurture, love, and companionship. I wear a ring that she gave me to this day. It was one she had carried out of Spain as she fled, one with three small diamonds. Two of them have disappeared, but one still sparkles for me to remind me of a life that went from a worldly perspective. uh, From a worldly perspective did not amount to much, but from God's perspective was gold tested and tried. As she passed into her inheritance, her life would have resulted in praise and glory and honor because she let her inner life expand and fill with the Holy Spirit of love and joy, even as her outer life contracted. And I'm sure only when she saw Jesus face to face did her life make any sense to her. Isn't it wonderful that the final word on a life is not the facts added up at the end? but the person one has become in spite of it all. We forget that nothing in this life can keep us from God fulfilling his purpose for us, except our lack of surrender. Nothing in this life can keep God from fulfilling his purpose in you accept your lack of surrender and when we surrender even our mistakes and our regrets he can make something of them Edith Stein a Jewish philosopher who became a Christian and who died in the Holocaust said whatever is surrendered to God is not lost but is saved chastened exalted and proportioned out in true measure. You are such a composite of the choices of others, even your grandparents. You're a composite of your circumstances, of your own choices, your yeses and your noes to the Lord. But over all of these, the imprint of the living and healing hand of the lord is so much more real and transformational that when he stretches out his hand and blessing over you all these things are ordered into a beautiful story of rich meaning and glory nothing is lost in the creative hand of the lord if we just give it to him It may be tonight that you need to walk into the presence of God and be aligned to what is real. It may be that you've forgotten that you belong to the Lord, that your story belongs to him, that it's his story. You can start by confessing unbelief, maybe that God truly lives in you. You know, I had to make a practice of confessing unbelief at, i met i confessed it many 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 times a day and that was the starting place for me lord i don't really believe that's a sin i, I confess that lord please help my unbelief fill me with your belief and i walked in belief in obedience and then i started being changed You know, obedience to the Lord changes you. (laughs) It truly transforms you. So you can start by confessing that unbelief. There may be something in your life that you are clutching on to so hard. This is mine. Maybe a lot has been taken from you, and you feel like this is the one thing that's mine. My private space. Maybe the Lord's saying, that's what I want. Not because he wants to steal from you, but because he wants to fill that clutched hand with something so much bigger and beautiful. More beautiful. So we're going to pray tonight that this surrender, that all of us can come to a deeper place of surrender with the Lord. And we're going to ask for the space to be made for the Holy Spirit to come in.